0: Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We've been promising another round of urban legends for a while, and I really enjoy researching these stories, so here you go. I listed the links to our previous urban legends episodes in our show notes, so you don't have to try and dig them up in the archives. This collection covers the whole range from horror to humorous, and we hope you enjoy them. And now, Urban Legends 5. The headline for our first urban legend, Free Cable TV? Yes, that's an urban legend, all right, given a little help with tricky advertising by companies like TV Frog that promises access to lots of channels for a one-time fee of around $90. The advertising, versions of which claim, never pay for cable TV again, and cable companies hate this, claims to allow you to watch your favorite TV shows and movies from any TV. And yes, that's true, except not all your favorite TV shows and movies, just the ones you can find on the Internet. So yes, the TV Frog, just like Roku and the others, enables televisions without smart TV functions to access services like Netflix and YouTube. But you're not going to get this week's live event on ESPN or your new fixer-upper on HGTV, unless they're also running it on their websites. TV Frog does claim to have an active user interface, unlike existing similar services which allows you to put apps and other software on it. Big whoop, some would say. I'm already doing that, say others. So the hunt for free cable goes on, and free cable TV remains just another urban legend. Oh, and that news about fixer-upper Joanna Gaines quitting the show to start her own cosmetics company? Pure urban legend. She and Chip just got the contract to start Season 5, and they enjoy what they're doing and plan to stay with it for the foreseeable future. Our second story has been floating around for a long time. This really happened, was how it was told to me. There was a well-known history professor at the University of Virginia, known for his fairness and his quick wit. Two of his students decided to go skiing for the weekend and were having such a good time hitting the slopes that they decided to stay another day and blow off the exam that was scheduled for Monday. They contacted the professor and explained that they had a flat tire on the way back and asked if they could take the test later that week. Upon hearing their story, the professor agreed that it was really just bad luck, and of course they could take the test later. At the appointed time, the professor greeted them and placed them in two separate rooms to take the test. But first he explained that the multiple choice and essay questions on the first page would account for 50% of their grade, while the second page contained just one multiple choice question also worth 50% of the entire grade. The two students felt confident that their ruse had worked until they reached the second page. It read, Which tire? A. Front left. B. Front right. C. Left rear. D. Right rear. You don't want to be standing near the tracks when the express train to hell comes into the station. The old story goes like this. For days, a ragged old man had hung around the Newark Central Station. The stationmaster kept running him off, but night after night he would return. He kept accosting people, shouting, It's coming for me! It's coming! Whenever anyone asked him what was coming for him, he would just clutch his head and cry, i done wrong! I killed a man that cheated me at cards, and now I'm going to pay! The stationmaster finally took the man aside and threatened to call the police if he didn't cease and desist. The old man rolled his eyes and replied, "'The express train for hell is coming for my soul! You've got to help me!' He broke away from the stationmaster and ran for the door. The time was two minutes to midnight. At that moment, a new sound introduced itself. A long whistle blew, once, then again. The stationmaster was startled. The next train wasn't due for another fifteen minutes. The old tramp started screaming when he heard the whistle. The stationmaster could hear the roar and chug of a steam train approaching fast, approaching too fast to stop at the station. The old man was standing at the edge of the platform, staring down the tracks in frozen terror. The station master ran forward and grabbed hold of the old tramp to pull him out of harm's way. The train whistle sounded again. A warm rush of air blew against everyone near the platform, and the station master heard the roar of an invisible train passing directly in front of him. He heard the hiss of the steam and the screech of flanges against iron rails. He felt the wind whipping, but he saw nothing. Beneath his grip, the old tramp gave a terrible wail. Then he vanished, leaving the station master empty handed. The roar of the invisible train faded into the distance and then ceased. The station master glanced at the station clock. It was midnight. "'Around him the waiting passengers and other bystanders were gasping and murmuring in fright. "'Good Lord, he was right,' the stationmaster murmured to himself. "'It did come for him. "'He pulled out a handkerchief and wiped his sweating, bald head with it. "'A trembling man standing nearby approached the stationmaster. "'Sir, what was that?' he asked. "'Son, I believe that was the express train to hell,' said the stationmaster. He shook his head and that seemed to bring him to his senses. Why don't you go back into the station and pour yourself a drink, he suggested to the trembling man. He pushed the man through the station door and then turned to address the dazed and frightened passengers. Nothing to worry about, folks, he said. It was just an express train passing through. The next train will be here in about ten minutes. The station master's reassuring manner calmed everyone. People turned away from the empty tracks and settled back into their seats whispering to each other about the strange events that had just taken place then the station master went into his office closed the door and poured himself a stiff drink to calm his nerves Whew! that's one for the books he muttered aloud i wonder if i should put it on the schedule 12 a.m express train to hell shaking his head he fortified himself with one more brandy and then went back to work And here's an urban legend you've probably heard. According to this legend, Mr. Rogers, the popular children's show host, was once a Navy SEAL sniper in Vietnam, responsible for numerous deaths. It goes on to say that the only reason he always wore a sweater was to cover up all of his tattoos. As you might have guessed, Mr. Rogers was never a Navy SEAL, and he had no tattoos. In fact, he was never in the military. Some real facts about Mr. Rogers. Those trademark sweaters he always wore were knitted by his mother. The trolley that ran by his neighborhood of make-believe is now used by the popular children's show Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, although animated. Also, 895 episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood were filmed between 1968 and 2001, and all are available at Amazon. Fred Rogers was a pioneer of early TV, as well as Julia Child, TV's pioneer chef, One urban legend says she was parachuted in behind enemy lines in World War II as a special agent for the OSS. And that one is true. Minus the parachute they flew her in. Julia Child was a secret agent, years before Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Julia Child got started in black and white TV. From 1944 to 1945, Julia was sent overseas and worked in Ceylon, present-day Sri Lanka, and Kunming, China, During these last two years in the OSS, Julia served as Chief of the OSS Registry. Julia, having top security clearances, knew every incoming and outgoing message that passed through her office, as her registry was serving all the intelligence branches. During her time in Ceylon, Julia handled highly classified papers that dealt with the invasion of the Malay Peninsula. She was fascinated with the work, especially when there were moments of danger. Her contributions and eagerness to serve her country are well-remembered and appreciated by the OSS family. And you can find out all about that story in our archived episode, Julia Child's Recipe for Shark Repellent, at 1001 Heroes Podcast. We'll leave a link to that episode in our show notes. And there's another urban legend that swirls around the Disney animated film, The Rescuers. The legend says that a topless woman appears in the animated film, The Rescuers. Who put the brief image of a topless woman in Disney's 1977 animated feature, The Rescuers? No one knows for sure, but the family-friendly studio admitted it was true. They said the film had been tampered with in post-production. A topless female appears in a window in two scenes in which rodents Bernard and Bianca are riding on a sardine can. The studio wasn't aware of the flash of nudity until 1999 when they had to formally issue a recall of the 1992 home video version in which viewers had found the naked lady. If you own a 1992 version, you might have a collector's item. And here's a question for you to mull over. Do you remember who the voices are behind Bernard and Bianca? There are a lot of skinwalker and shapeshifter urban legends out there. Here's a story from Reddit that'll get your attention. So I had a football coach back in high school who was also one of my teachers for a semester. He told us one story that freaked us all out pretty bad. He had a coaching job at a small college in Montana when he was a lot younger and newly married. He said that after practice one evening, he was making his long commute home and the route ran alongside just fields and fields of hay, grain, whatever. Since it was late summer, early fall, It wasn't even approaching dark yet. His car was an old beat-up truck with a bench seat. Anyway, he's driving along when he sees a hitchhiker on the shoulder. This being back in the day and in small-town Montana, my teacher pulled over to let this guy in without a second thought. The man was described as wearing a really old, outdated style of suit. Not quite a zoot suit, but styled in a similar baggy way. He also had a big stylish hat. This guy looked like he was out of the 40s, and sort of like a pimp. My teacher thought it was weird that he was so overdressed, it being super hot out, but maybe that was the only clothing he had. So the guy gets in next to my teacher without a word. Teacher asks him where he needs to go, and the guy just points forward. Teacher drives on. Later, my teacher tried talking to the guy, just trying to make simple conversation, but the guy wouldn't speak or even acknowledge him. He just pulled his hat down like he was sleeping. Out of nowhere, the guy just tips up his hat, looks out the window, and says, Stop the car, now! My teacher pulls over, lets him out, not wanting to offend a possibly crazy man. The guy stands on the side of the road for a second, and then at a dead sprint, just runs off into the field beside the road, until my teacher couldn't see him anymore. Granted, the crop was fairly tall. He waits there for a while, thinking maybe the guy had the runs or something, and didn't want to go next to the road. After a long enough wait, my teacher gets back in the truck and starts to accelerate back onto the road. The thing about really old trucks is that they don't accelerate very fast. As my teacher got back on the road, he looked in his rearview mirror to check for a safe merge, but there wasn't a car in sight. What there was, was the hitchhiker, on all fours like an animal, running after the truck at an inhuman speed. Meanwhile, my teacher is beginning to fishtail as he attempts to go faster. The whole time, his eyes glued on the mirror, watching the man chase after his car. Eventually, he was able to get up to speed and lost sight of the guy in his mirror. When he was able to stop at a gas station to use a payphone, he called his wife at home to tell her the story and lock up the house. She thinks he's just messing with her and that he had been talking to her coworker about the hitchhiker. When he asks why she would think that, Apparently at her office in the town she worked in, one of her co-workers told her a story of the exact same thing happening to them. And it's a well-known urban legend in that town. She thought it was just folks playing with the new girl at work, who had to drive home alone at night. Anyways, my teacher assured her that he was not lying, and she evidently believes him and can vouch for her side of the story, because she showed up to one of our fundraisers, and I asked her about it. So yeah, now I just avoid lonely roads in Montana. And from us, if you check for stories about the Navajo legend of the skinwalkers or shapeshifters, you'll find a wealth of material regarding their spooky ability to keep up with cars and change from human to animal and back. And this next urban legend is called Dog Jump Bridge. The Gothic stone structure located near Dumbarton in Scotland spans a narrow gorge on the grounds of a 19th century manor. Since the 1960s, Some 50 dogs have perished after leaping from the same spot on the bridge. Hundreds more have jumped but lived, some even returning for a second leap onto the dry creek bed 50 feet below. These apparent canine suicides have baffled the poor dog owners unlucky enough to witness their dear pets jumping off Dog Suicide Bridge. Conspiracy theories arose. Suspicions of supernatural forces grew. Was there a disturbance in the magnetic field? Could the bridge be haunted? An horrific incident in October 1994 provoked further talk of possible paranormal activity. A 32-year-old man threw his two-week-old son from the bridge because he believed him to be possessed by the devil. He then tried to jump off the parapet himself but was pulled back by his terrified wife. In 2005, the Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals enlisted canine psychologist Dr. David Sands and animal habitat expert David Sexton to investigate the bridge from a dog's eye view. After taking in the sights, smells, and sounds of the Overtune Gorge with carefully leased canines in tow, the pair concluded that it was likely the strong scent of mink that was luring dogs over the edge, dulling their other senses and preventing them from seeing the sheer drop until it was too late. It's not a definitive explanation, but it's a little more comforting than the ideas of a haunted bridge that forces happy pets to commit suicide. There is a counter to that circulating. A well-known hunter and trapper in that area reported to a local paper that there hasn't been any mink in that area for a hundred years. Might be time to rethink. The next urban legend, a well-planned retirement. This one's from the London Times. Outside the Bristol Zoo in England, there's a parking lot for 150 cars and eight buses. It was manned by a very pleasant attendant with a ticket machine charging cars one pound, which is about $1.40 U.S., and five pounds for buses, which is about $7 U.S. This parking attendant worked there solid for all of 25 years. Then, one day, he just didn't turn up for work. Oh, well said Bristol Zoo Management. We'd better phone up the city council and get them to send a new parking attendant. So they called the city council. Uh, no, said the council. That parking lot is your responsibility. Eh, uh-uh, said Bristol Zoo Management. The attendant was employed by the city council, wasn't he? Uh, no, insisted the council. Sitting in his villa somewhere on the coast of Spain is a bloke who had been taking the parking lot fees estimated at 400 pounds, about 560 U.S., per day at the Bristol Zoo for at least 25 years. If he could have worked seven days a week, this amounts to just over 3.6 million pounds, or $7 million U.S., and no one even knows his name. And this next urban legend. You might recall that John Hinckley was a seriously deranged young man who shot President Reagan in the early 1980s. Hinckley was absolutely obsessed with movie star Jodie Foster, extremely jealous, and in his twisted mind, loved Jodie Foster to the point that to make himself well-known to her, he attempted to assassinate President Reagan. There has been, there's been on and off speculation about Hinckley possibly being released. Consequently, you might appreciate the following letter from Nancy Reagan to John Hinckley. And as the urban legend goes, it was on Nancy Reagan's personal stationery. To John Hinckley. From Mrs. Nancy Reagan, my family and I wanted to drop you a short note to tell you how pleased we are with the great strides you're making to your recovery. In our fine country spirit of understanding and forgiveness, we want you to know that there is a nonpartisan consensus of compassion and forgiveness throughout. The Reagan family and I want you to know that no grudge is borne against you for shooting President Reagan. We, above all, are aware of how the mental stress and pain could have driven you to such an act of desperation. We are confident that you will soon make a complete recovery and return to your family to join the world again as a healthy and productive young man. Best wishes, Nancy Reagan and family. P.S. While you've been incarcerated, Barack Obama has been banging Jodie Foster like a screen door in a hurricane. You might want to look into that. This urban legend, called the Clinton Body Count, concerns the rumor and innuendo that continues to swirl around Bill and Hillary Clinton, Before we jump into this, this isn't a political hit piece, and it's too late now to hurt them politically anyway. It has become a popular urban legend, and although most researchers are sure that the Clintons are not the puppet masters behind any conspiracies, they do have a long list of associates, contacts, etc., who have suffered tragic consequences. According to this persistent urban legend, there are over 110 persons no longer living, that were connected with the Clintons in some way and usually with knowledge or information that would have been harmful to the Clintons reputation. It would take two hours to retell them and include an investigative rebuttal for each one. But all I can say is that if you're holding any dirt on Bill or Hillary, your chances of dying in a car or a plane crash or of committing suicide just went up 700%. We'll give you a few of the more compelling deaths that provide the framework for this enduring urban legend. Let's begin with data analyst and Democrat National Committee staffer Seth Rich, who was mysteriously murdered in the streets of Washington, D.C. on July 10, 2016. Although it is being investigated by the D.C. police as a robbery, his wallet, credit cards, and watch were not taken. The 27-year-old was shot in the back on July 10 at 4.15 a.m. near his affluent neighborhood while he was reportedly walking home from his girlfriend's apartment. Police still have no suspects, Witnesses or motive. His mother told the local NBC station that there were bruises on his face, knees, and hands, apparently from trying to fend off his attackers. Some are speculating that Hillary Clinton is behind the murder because Rich could have been the DNC staffer responsible for leaking the 20,000 damaging DNC emails to WikiLeaks, although a lot of effort has been made to place the blame on the Russians. Another urban legend in the making. The allegation here with Seth's situation is that powerful Bernie Sanders allies convinced Rich to leak the data. He had previously worked on the U.S. Senate campaign for Nebraska businessman Scott Kleeb, who lost his election. The Clinton Global Initiative provided funds for a clean energy business started by Klebe, which had come under investigation after losing $300,000 in 2010 and another $300,000 in 2011, despite the subsidies. Rich was also previously employed at a data firm that had worked with the Clintons. After news of possible corruption emerged between the Clinton Global Initiative and Kleb, supposedly that led to Sanders cronies pressuring Rich to leak what was going on. So that's the theory anyway. Rich was a data analyst and he worked at the DNC, so it is very possible he could have had access to the DNC's emails. Julian Assange of WikiLeaks said recently on TV that it wasn't Russian hackers who intercepted the emails, as the Hillary Clinton campaign has alleged. Instead, any one of a number of staffers within the DNC could have leaked them. We checked Snopes, who, as you might expect, labeled the suspicion over Rich's death as false. This is strange, since how does Snopes know that it's false? The police haven't even completed their investigation yet, which Snopes admits... Many murders go unsolved, including several of the strange deaths of people associated with the Clintons. A $25,000 reward is being offered for information about who killed Rich. To be fair, two people were robbed at gunpoint within the hour before Rich was murdered, and a little over a mile away. But if Rich was really the victim of a robbery, why didn't the robbers take his valuables? It is possible that Rich refused to turn his valuables over, so the robbers shot him, and then fled without the valuables due to the noise from the gunshot. We can all be sure that neither Hillary nor any of the people associated with her or the DNC would ever order such a thing. And this update is of May 16, 2017. A private investigator hired by Seth's family just reported to the media that 1. He has proof from Seth's home computer that Seth had made contact with WikiLeaks just weeks prior to his death. And that 2. He had spoken to the D.C. police requesting a look at Seth's work computer and said that he was told that, no, he could not have access to it, and, as one story goes, that they had been told to back off the investigation. If the investigator is correct and the story is right, that would add new fuel to the urban legend that someone ordered Seth's execution. Another fairly recent addition to the Clinton body bag count is Sean Lucas, who, along with filmmaker Ricardo Villaba, served the DNC on July 3rd with a complaint and summons in a fraud action on behalf of Bernie Sanders supporters. As many in the U.S. are aware, it was a series of WikiLeaks leaks that showed that the Democrat National Committee people who were in charge of the debates and committed to fairness in the pre-election debate process between Bernie Sanders and Hillary were unfairly tilting the scales toward Hillary. The email leaks showed that Bernie never had a chance and that the fix was in all the way for him, a scandal which prompted the immediate resignation of the DNC chairman. In the video, Sean can be seen grinning, happy to deliver the summons. Not so happy later when, on August 2nd, he was found lying on the bathroom floor dead by his girlfriend when she came home that evening. His girlfriend said he had been in good health. And there was Victor Thorne, who wrote four books exposing the Clintons who reportedly killed himself with a gun on his 54th birthday, August 1st, 2016, while on top of a mountain near his Pennsylvania home. The books he wrote were Hillary and Bill, the Sex Volume, Hillary and Bill, the Drugs Volume, and Hillary and Bill, the Murder Volume, and his latest, which was published in February, Crowning Clinton, Why Hillary Shouldn't Be in the White House. According to the Inquisitor, Thorne had appeared multiple times on the Russell Scott show and told the host, Russell. If I'm ever found dead, it was murder. I would never kill myself. Then there was Larry Nichols, who claimed on the Pete Santilli Internet show that he was hired as a hitman for Clintons and killed several people years ago. Transcripts are on the Internet. At last report, Nichols was still alive. Then there was Vince Foster, former White House counselor and colleague of Hillary Clinton at Little Rock's Rose Law Firm. He died of a gunshot wound to the head ruled as a suicide on July twentieth, 1993. It has recently been brought up that this was one day after Bill Clinton fired FBI Director William Sessions, although no one is trying to link this with any conspiracy theories. All responsible sources, including five investigations, say Foster's death was a suicide. He had been suffering from depression. We offer a link to an Alana Goodman article in our show notes which explains, in her opinion, why Vince Foster Deputy White House Counsel, who is very close to Hillary and Bill and all their legal challenges, was suffering from depression. Also, many articles based on the inconsistencies of the Vince Foster death, which was never investigated by the Park Police as a murder, are also available online, and these help to fuel the urban legend of the body bag count. One of these articles reads, in part, Found dead in Fort Marcy Park in Washington, D.C. of a supposed suicide by gunshot. A suicide note was supposedly found a few days later, torn into several pieces, in his briefcase, after his office had been entered by White House staff and materials removed. The suicide note, leaked despite official efforts to keep it from view, has since been revealed to be a forgery. The gun which he supposedly used to kill himself was reported to be still in his hand, but the person who found the body reports there was no gun at that time. Many irregularities surround the death and the investigation of it. For one thing, neither Foster's fingerprints or blood were on the gun he supposedly inserted into his mouth and fired. And there was Ed Willey, Clinton's fundraiser, found dead November 1993, deep in the woods of Virginia of a gunshot wound to the head. It was ruled a suicide. Ed Willey died on the same day his wife Kathleen Willey claimed Bill Clinton groped her in the Oval Office in the White House. Ed Willie was involved in several Clinton fundraising events. He was a former Virginia state senator and a lawyer. His wife Kathleen was active in Democrat state politics, worked as a volunteer, including some fundraising efforts, on behalf of the Clinton campaign in Virginia in 1992, and later served as a volunteer in the White House Social Office. Snopes, where you can always find research to quash any thoughts of conspiracies, says that Ed Willie's death was as clear-cut a case of suicide as one is ever likely to find. Snopes writes, He was a desperate, unstable man who, along with his wife, spent money lavishly, stole $275,000 of a client's money, and was about half a million dollars in debt to the IRS. He took his own life on 29th of November, 1993, leaving behind a suicide note found by his wife, reading, Saying I'm sorry doesn't begin to explain. I hope one day you'll forgive me. At the same time as Willie was killing himself, his wife was allegedly being groped by Bill Clinton. She said she'd gone to the chief executive looking for a job to help her family out of its financial crisis and found herself fending off his advances. Clinton admitted to the meeting, but denied her version of what took place. Kathleen Willie testified in Paula Jones' sexual harassment suit against Clinton, but she never claimed that Clinton had her husband killed. So even if Clinton was groping a married woman who was asking for a job, which he honestly said he didn't, he certainly wasn't arranging a hit on her husband the same day. It was just an unlucky coincidence for Bill, and a very bad day for the Willies. Then there was Jerry Parks, head of Clinton's gubernatorial security team in Little Rock. He was gunned down in his car at a deserted intersection outside Little Rock. Parks' son said his father was building a dossier on Clinton. He allegedly threatened to reveal this information. After he died, the files were mysteriously removed from his house. Then there were a bunch of very unfortunate people who were associates of the Clintons, in one nefarious way or another, who died in plane crashes. These were all investigated thoroughly and all found to be caused by pilot error. Then there were 15 men who worked as personal guards for Bill Clinton in Arkansas and were unlucky victims of shootings or plane crashes. Then there was James Bunch, who died from gunshot suicide. It was reported that he had a black book of people which contained the names of influential people who visited prostitutes in Texas and Arkansas while Bill Clinton was governor. Then there were Bill Clinton's female acquaintances. One, Suzanne Coleman, who reportedly had an affair with Clinton when he was Arkansas Attorney General. She died of a gunshot wound to the back of the head, ruled a suicide. She was pregnant at the time of her death. And two, Paula Gruber, Clinton's speech interpreter for the deaf from 1978 until her death in 1992. She died in a one-car accident. She told a number of people that Clinton had made improper advances. And there was Danny Casolaro. Danny was a freelance reporter and writer who was investigating the October Surprise and other Clinton-connected happenings. Danny was found dead in a bathtub in a Sheraton hotel room in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Danny was staying at the hotel while keeping appointments in the D.C. area pertinent to his investigation. He was found with his wrists slashed. At least one, and possibly both of his wrists, were cut ten times. All of his research and materials were missing and have never been recovered. And there was John Wilson, found dead from an apparent hanging suicide on May 18, 1993. He was a former Washington, D.C. council member and claimed to have info on Whitewater the purportedly Clinton-generated real estate scandal in Arkansas that Vince Foster or Jim McDougal would tell you all about if they were only alive. And there was John Parnell Walker, an investigator for the RTC who was looking into the linkage between the Whitewater and Madison s l bankruptcy. Walker accidentally fell from the top of the Lincoln Towers building. And lastly, William Colby, The retired CIA director was found dead on May 6, 1996, after his wife reported him missing on April 27, 1996. Apparently, Colby decided to go on an impromptu canoeing excursion and never returned. Colby, who had just started writing for a strategic investment newsletter, worried many in the intelligence community. Colby's past history of divulging CIA secrets in the past were well known. Strategic Investor had covered the Vince Foster suicide and had hired handwriting experts to review Foster's suicide note. Those experts apparently had found the note to be forged. Coincidences? Yes, according to many. No way, according to others. But the Clinton body count urban legend will likely persist and grow. Moving on to thank you from the old folks home. Just when you thought you'd lost your faith in human kindness... Someone who teaches at a middle school in Safety Harbor, Florida, forwarded the following letter. The letter was sent to the principal's office after the school had sponsored a luncheon for the elderly. An old lady received a new radio at the lunch and was writing to say thanks. Dear Safety Harbor Middle School, God blesses you for the beautiful radio I won at your recent senior citizen's luncheon. I am 84 years old and live at the Safety Harbor assisted home for the Aged. All my family has passed away. I am all alone now, and it's nice to know that someone is thinking of me. God bless you for your kindness to an old, forgotten lady. My roommate is 95 and always had her own radio. But before I received one, she would never let me listen to hers, even when she was napping. The other day her radio fell off the nightstand and broke into a lot of pieces. It was awful, and she was in tears. She asked if she could listen to mine, and I said, Screw you! Life is good. Sincerely, Edna. And we hope life is good for all of you 1001 listeners out there as well. We also invite you to subscribe to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales at iTunes and elsewhere, like podbay.fm or audioboom.com. These classic stories by writers like Jack London and Rudyard Kipling are terrific and still set the standard for great and enjoyable short stories today. Our top episodes... Hearts and Hands by O'Henry. The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. A Piece of Steak by Jack London. Oh, heck, they're all good. I'll place the iTunes link in the show notes. We need reviews there. I've been lax at asking for them, but we need them, so help us out when you have a minute. I guess that covers it. Until next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or a little after. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.